Back in the studio with me is Naomi Ballantyne, the uh, Managing Director of Partners Life. Welcome back, Naomi. Hi, Philip. It's great to have you here. Now, you've had a really big year. You've had the Get Life, Get Life Right campaign launch. You've just recently launched your underwriting platform, Mum, and you've also got Vince out there. So how have all those gone? Um, oh, it's kind of been a phenomenal year for us, really. We've Obviously, all of those pieces of work take a long period of time mm. until you can bring them to the market. So they've been our kind of secret baby for, yeah, yeah. for a couple so of the, years. The yeah. Are out, yeah. yeah, so <laughs> it's really nice to have those secrets mm. out there. And I think we, we kind of hit the market at the perfect time, not that we knew two years ago mm. the market would necessarily look like it does today. Mm. Mm. But um, it's been really clear that there's been a need for tools to support advisors mm. um, and to also give them confidence that whatever regulatory changes, cost changes, commission changes might happen, mm. that they can counter the balance yeah, with yeah. efficiency and productivity um, if they if they can re-engineer their processes in their yeah. back office to, to do that. And those tools help them yeah. to do so that. So MUM, which is your underwriting platform, mm. so that will speed up the process significantly? It already has, yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely. So we knew it would, mm. we just didn't know how quickly we we get a lot of uptake, mm -hmm. it's been phenomenal. Well, that was going to be my question, how yeah. has the uptake been? So two, two weeks in, we're now at 30% of all applications coming through Mum. Wow, that's impressive. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and obviously the more people use it, the more comfortable they, they become with it, yeah. the more it becomes just yeah, the way yeah. they do business with us. So absolutely that is the intent, that yeah. it, it completely shrinks that part of the process. And events shrinks the other part mm. of the process in terms mm. of the education, the consumer and the provision of advice. So between those two tools, you can do so much more now in the time that, that you have yes. um, than has been possible before. So, and I think that hopefully that's given advisors real um, comfort that mm. they can do this yeah. um, as they go into the future, which is really important for us as an advice company. Oh no, definitely. And, and of course the other big thing is conduct and culture and the review from the, the regulators, you got your feedback. Can you um, talk any a little bit about the feedback you got and any changes that you've had to make subsequently to the business? Yeah, well it's not really surprising as an eight-year-old business um, that has always had automatic upgrades for customers that we don't have um, any issues with mm. legacy mm -hmm. pro products mm. or systems. But certainly we were challenged by what the regulators asked us to do in terms of prove stuff. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. prove that you haven't done bad things yeah. um, to your customers with no real guidance mm. in terms of what that proof needed yeah. to look yeah. like or what would satisfy them. So the biggest challenge of this conduct and culture work was really Really, us asking ourselves, how can we, how can we, what are we looking for? Mm. How, what, what, how do we find it? And mm. then, what, are, how do we present it yeah, um, yeah. if we find it? So that's been the biggest challenge. So some good things have come out of that. We've, um, we've got a number of projects that mm. we're looking at um, how we get more in-depth data about what's happening um, in our own book. Mm -hmm. Certainly, it's changed our thinking about our relationship with uh, that triangle of advisor, client, and insurance company. So how does that change? So historically, the advisors owned the client mm. relationship mm. and the insurance company's been the insurer. Mm -hmm. um, and in some cases with some companies, they've effectively, uh, I guess, outsourced everything to do with client interaction to the advisor. Mm -hmm. um, and we've never done that. We've always seen it as a, as a three-way street, mm. but we've still trusted all of the pieces that led to the client becoming ours mm. and all of the pieces of servicing the client outside of just their policy. Mm. We trusted that that was happening mm -hmm. uh, because that's the advisor's space. Yes. Um, and we always felt that it's a conflict for an insurance company to be in the middle of an advice mm. process. 
Um, so to hear, you know, regulators saying you, you, they're your customers, you've got to take responsibility for the quality of the advice that they mm. received mm. was really, really challenging um, and scary for advisors. So, so, so is it now that the life company owns the client more than the advisor? Well, I think they always have. It's yeah. just your own headset in terms of how you see it because we collect premiums we deliver mm. against the product promises, mm. right? Mm. We, we have all the contractual mm. relationships with the client mm. and in the end we pay the, the money yeah. in the event of a claim. The difference is now the life company is being um, expected to know that the client is theirs correctly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the client hasn't come to them incorrectly and taking and, and being exposed to conflicted risk that the client's been completely unaware of. Uh, and so the challenge for us is how do we do that when we don't have any relationship with the client and nor should we mm, mm. until the very end of when they actually apply to us. Yeah, yeah. Um, once the product provider decision's been made at the mm. end of the process. So, so because a lot of advisors you know, think that they own the clients, but but in reality they don't. No, they don't. So, so does it change how advisors might value their businesses? I think it will. Mm. There's a couple of reasons. Um, the first one is in terms of the advice piece. So we've been doing some work in terms of understanding once we have a client, how do we backtrack to check that mm. they went through a proper advice mm. process? Not was the advice correct, but mm. was there a process? Do they understand underwriting? Mm. Did they fully understand their requirement to disclose? Was it replacement business? And did they go through mm. a process to identify the benefits and mm. the gates? So we, you know, so how do we do that without actually getting involved in and was it right to advise them to sell our product or someone else's product or this amount of the product? Because we're not there. Mm, mm. And that's not information about the client that is ours to know. Um, but we should check mm. that there has at least been advice mm. provided for the commission that we're paying for that advice mm. and, and that the risks have been mitigated mm. for the client making the decisions that they made as best as we can. So mm. that's one part of it, which means we're going to be in a conversation with clients about the advice. Oh, well, that's, um, that's quite a big... It's change. a huge change. Um, the other part of it is this requirement to service the clients. We've heard a lot of the language saying getting paid to do nothing. And you've seen articles mm. and you've published articles <laughs> from me saying, hang on a minute, let's be careful. Mm. There's not nothing going on here. No, no. Um, but for some clients there is because we've all heard stories of clients who say, I haven't heard from my broker for the last eight years, mm. right? And yet that broker is presumably still collecting a okay. commission on that and assuming that they've got an asset to sell mm. off the back of that. And so the things I've been saying to advisors is you can't have certainty that the regulations around who owns the commission, the renewal commission, the service, is not going to change. Mm. Because the rhetoric around it is certainly saying, prove that you deserve it. Yes, you yeah. don't just get it because. So it's changed from a deferral of the upfront commission um, to a, a service commission conversation. Mm. So I've been saying to advisors, if you want to have certainty that that's an asset, service your clients mm. and, and prove that you're servicing so they, clients. So, so, so advisors will have to prove to you pretty much every time that they're actually servicing? I, I don't know that they need to prove to us. No. I think they're going to they need to, to be able to, to prove. Yeah. But we need to be able to monitor that. Mm. So if we see, for example, a big book of business where no activity ever happens for a particular advisor, mm. it triggers a question about what's going on here. Mm. Uh, these clients, have they just been bought off another advisor and they've no. been left to their own devices? Um, and so we need now to, to look at those things mm. and go, that, that's a trigger for an investigation because it doesn't look right for those clients. So it's, it's, so it's an interesting dilemma. So my advice to advisors is, well, if you're looking after your clients, it's not a problem. Mm. So okay. make sure you are, mm. yeah. 
But if you're not looking after them, yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting. So you, you'll have to do a lot more work in terms of sort of monitoring what sort of activity is going on with advisors. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so sort of sticking with the commission thing, um, you know, by the time we t get this up on the site, um, transitional licensing will be open. What's, what's Partners Life sort of thinking about in terms of its relationships with um, FAPS going forward? Yeah. And, you know, what do you think the relationships will be with dealer groups because all the overrides and all those, all those aggregation benefits of the groups have now disappeared? Yeah, that's a really <laughs> interesting question. So in the FAP world, we don't see FAPs any differently than the way we currently see advisors and the dealer groups that provide services mm, for mm, their members mm. um, and that are focused on system support, compliance, all of those sorts. Of, they're, 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 it's just another word. They have a license process mm. they've got to go through, but in the end, they are involved in the provision of advice to the client. Mm -hmm. We need them um, and they need to be remunerated. So the question now becomes if if you've got organisations who want to sit over top of groups of brokers but not be a FAP, so, yeah. so stay as they yeah. are, yeah. For, yeah. for want of a better word, what's the, where should the remuneration go? Because who's got the cost and the liability, mm. um, which didn't exist in the old days, know, right? The old so, days. so the dilemma for us, or the question for us, is who do we pay mm. to provide the things that the, the overrides that we pay are designed to do and on what basis should they be paid. Mm. Um, and the reason I say that is one of the questions the regulators have asked us over and over is how are you going to use your remuneration to incentivise good advice behaviour. And the answer? <laughs> well, it's interesting. We used to have a production bonus mm -hmm. um, in, our, um, in our suite, so a base commission for everybody, mm -hmm. the same for everybody, mm -hmm. and then a bonus level built on how much business you'd mm -hmm. written for us, because yes, yeah. that was the normal way of That's doing things. Model, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the regulator banned, uh, is, is banning, mm -hmm. you know, the um, volume-based incentives. Mm -hmm. so, um, so we went, well, we've got this vehicle that mm. rewards people for something over and above just selling the policy. Mm. So let's remove the volume criteria mm. and give ourselves time to think about what criteria we replace it with. Mm. So we don't see the remuneration model to an advisor changing. There's a bonus and there's a base commission. Mm. It's just how you quantify how much of the bonus commission they should get paid based on what criteria. So we've been doing huge amounts of work around. If we have to monitor this stuff, yeah, yeah. how do we reward it? How do we measure it so that the advisor gets a feel for how they're tracking so you can change their behaviour because mm. the intention is not to not pay people yeah, yeah. it's to get them to do the right thing so right? the pot of money will still be there yes. but it will be paid out on a different yes. basis so have you finalized how that might work or is that a work in progress it's a work in progress we, we're pretty close mm. um, our board needs to consider it mm. and uh, make sure that they're comfortable with it mm. but we we think it's the right answer we think it's the right answer mm. but we have seen a couple of our competitors just roll their production bonus into their base commission mm. and just go, our base commission is now higher. Yeah. I'm not sure how that then can be used to, yeah. to motivate or incentivise good behaviour. And you've always got that little in your stomach yeah, that yeah. Mm. that means that if we aren't paying people the same level of bonus that others are because they're not mm. hitting the levels of quality criteria we need, mm. they will be financially yeah, better off yeah. to move. And we've got that dilemma, is that okay? So Are you, we comfortable you, you can either that? just wrap it up into your existing commission or you can actually put some more criteria around it and how you earn it is I guess what you're saying. Yeah, and, I, and as I said, the whole intention is to get everybody to hit the highest mm. mark because they're earning it yeah. and demonstrate that the industry is at a good space and that people are behaving 
appropriately. That's the intention of a scheme that allows yeah. you to do that. So do you think we're going to see a greater um, diversity in the remuneration, remuneration models offered by life companies? It's hard to say. Mm. I think that there was, you know, I think that there was a, a rapid, gosh, we've got to get rid of this yeah. volume-based incentive. An easy thing is to just put it to commission so now we don't have any volume-based incentives. Mm. I th I'm guessing, yeah. but I suspect that that's, that's the case because it's hard to build systems and processes. It's hard if you're not already monitoring something to build a remuneration structure around it. Mm. And it's hard to be the first mover. Mm. I wonder if, uh, if, for example, we lead uh, in a number of these ways, whether it then becomes the norm for the industry yeah. because there's a, there's a thing that you've, you can look to and, and modify to suit your own company yes, yeah. as opposed to trying to figure it out from scratch. So yeah. I don't know, um, we, and we're not banking on that. We are truly doing what the regulators have asked us to do is to think about how we use remuneration to incentivise the right things so, so that they don't regulate commissions yes. in order to try to well, achieve that's the that. last thing that the exactly. industry wants. And, exactly. and just finally, you know, dealer groups were set up essentially for aggregation purposes. Do, do dealer groups have a future going forward? Well, it's the question about the FAP, mm. not FAP, right? Mm. Um, if a dealer group becomes a FAP, definitely they have a future going forward. Mm. They are now in the advice process. Mm. They are taking liability and responsibility for what happens in their organisation. Which they, they didn't do previously. That's right. Well, yeah. they didn't have to. There was no requirement mm. to. Um, and that's a big step, a big amount of money that mm. they need to invest to do that. Um, they will survive, provided that they can fund themselves through this transition period. Because if they haven't already got systems and processes, they're now going to have mm. to invest in them. Um, so definitely. Um, in terms of um, dealer groups that see themselves as service providers, maybe, mm. outside of taking responsibility and liability, so you can all be your own FAPs, but we'll provide this sort of economies of scale in terms of access to things, their world might change because as a service provider, generally you charge the people you're providing the service yeah. to. And if those people have got the liability and the responsibility mm. of the licence, then should the money go to those people and they pay mm. out of that for the services that they have to acquire in order to deliver mm. against the requirements. So it's a big question mark um, in the industry um, in terms of how does this all work together? Yes, look, there's so many unknowns out there still. Yeah. We're, we're right on the door of transitional licensing opening. Yeah. Anyway, look, thank you very much for your time. That was really interesting and look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thanks, Philip. Yeah, cheers. Yeah.